0: Please turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. If you're thinking, well, hold up, aren't we in John? Yes. However, before we get to our text today, I just wanted to set some things up for you. In Exodus chapter 12, we read, starting in verse 1, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts." And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt at night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both of man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Well, what we just read was the institution of the Passover feast. And do you remember the reason for it? Sons of Israel had gone down with uh, Jacob, down to uh, Egypt, where Joseph was at. Eventually, Joseph would die, along with all his brothers. But the people of Israel would grow and become great in numbers, so much so that the Bible says the land was filled with them. Then there arose a new king in Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he was afraid that Israel had become too big and too mighty, And if a war had broke out, they might side against the Egyptians and fight fight them. And so they oppressed Israel. And the more they oppressed the Israelites, the Bible says, the more they grew. And so the Egyptians would make slaves out of them. Then the king of Egypt asked the Hebrew midwives to kill any boys that were born. But the midwives didn't listen. And when the king found out, he ordered that every son born to the Hebrews be cast into the Nile River. Well, that eventually is going to come back and bite them in the rear. But Israel would groan because of their slavery and cry out to God for help. God heard their groaning. He remembered their covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he calls Moses to rescue the people of Israel. And that rescue would involve God bringing upon the Egyptians ten plagues. And the final plague was the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. However, God would spare the firstborn of Israel as long as they followed Moses' instructions. And we just read those instructions. On the night of the plague, the Israelites were instructed to stay in their homes after slaughtering a lamb and placing its blood on the doorpost and the lintel. The blood was to be a sign that distinguished them from the Egyptians. And since the people were to be ready to depart... At a moment's notice, they were to eat the lamb quickly and be dressed and ready to go. Well, the Israelites followed Moses' instructions, and at midnight that night, Jehovah struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron in the middle of the night and ordered them to take all the Israelites and depart Egypt. The Israelites left in haste, taking their bread uh, before it was leavened, so that on the journey they had to bake unleavened cakes. and God would command Israel to celebrate this day every year. It became known as the Passover, because, using the verb expressed there in verse 12 in the Hebrew, God passed over the homes of the Israelites who had the blood displayed. Also, the Passover day would begin a seven-day festival, we read in Exodus 12, verse 15, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened, from the first day until the seventh day that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone, but every, but everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you." And you shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread, for on this day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And So it was to be kept every year for all future generations. And yet, even as, as important as that event was, Israel would soon forget. In 2 Kings 23, we read that King Josiah commanded all the people to keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in the book of the covenant, verse 22, for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or of the kings of Judah. However, by the time we get to the time of Jesus, the Passover was kept more consistently. Now in Jesus' day, Jerusalem's population was probably somewhere between 100 to 300,000 people. However, however, at Passover, Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival, and it's estimated that at least a million people would show up. Josephus says 2.7 million. I don't know if he was exaggerating, but that's what he said. So You've got to imagine this is quite a festival. Josephus wrote that the crowds would be so big that it would make the Roman authorities nervous, so they would station an army of, people, of soldiers around the temple to stand guard, just in case anything got out of hand. Speaking of which, then there was the temple. The temple in Jerusalem was the permanent replacement for the tabernacle, which was the tent where God resided among his people, During their wilderness wanderings, the first temple was built by King Solomon around 950 BC and was destroyed by the Babylonians. And then, after the fall of Babylon, the Jewish exiles returned and began to rebuild the temple, which was completed around 518 to 517 BC. But then Herod comes along and begins to repair it and to expand it. It sat in an area that we now call the Temple Mount, which is an area of around 35 acres. The temple itself was surrounded by courtyards. There was a court of the Gentiles, a men's court, a court of the women, and a court for the priest. And only the priest could enter the temple itself, which took up a small part of the mount. The court of the Gentiles was the court furthest away from the temple. This was the closest that any non-Jew could get to the sanctuary. This temple was extremely important for the Jews the center of his life. This is where heaven and earth met. This is where God manifested his glory, his presence. This is where the sacrifices were offered, where there was the atonement for sin was made, where forgiveness was received. It was also where the annual feast and the festivals took place. Again, this was literally the center of Israel's worship. And so all these Jews are not only coming to the city, but they're coming specifically to the temple. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a big music festival, but if you have, you can probably imagine a little bit of what this was like. Just a massive crowd. And remember, they're coming to offer up their sacrifices. Josephus says at one point there are at least 256,000 lambs slaughtered for this festival in one year. But here's the thing, how many of these people... Especially the ones traveling in from some distance are going to haul their animals with them on their trip. It'd been very inconvenient. Not only that, you had to get your animals checked out. And there was a good possibility they wouldn't accept your animal. So you put two and two together. You've got at least a million people come into town, they need animals for sacrifice. It's more convenient to sell them their animals there than it would for them to bring them. Gee, you think there's an opportunity here to make a little bit of dough? I can see the finance guy's eyes lighting up back there. Some historians say that these sellers would do their business outside of the temple, but eventually moved inside to the courtyards, possibly because the high priest had taken over the business. According to one commentary, it was in the outer court that the temple authorities arranged booths called the Bazaars of Annas and belonging to the family of the high priest to provide animals approved for sacrifice. But that's not all. When you bought these animals, as well as paid the temple tax, it had to be in their currency because most local coins were stamped with pagan symbols, which was not acceptable. Some historians estimate that the exchange rate was over 10%. So again, just imagine the scene. You've got hundreds of thousands of people flooding into this city. You've got tens of thousands rotating in and out of the Temple Mount area. Thousands upon thousands of animals being sold. Hundreds of Roman uh, temple police watching on guard. You're at the temple, and it's filled with all this noise from the people, from the buyers, from the sellers, from the animals. The scene had to be unbelievable. And this is the scene our Lord now steps into in John chapter 2. Verse 12, And this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Then the pastor of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And what was Jesus' response to seeing the money changers and the sellers? And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Obviously, Jesus was upset. In fact, it angered him to the point that he started to gather up cords, which were probably laying around. You know, these cords were used in handling the animals. Begins collecting them, makes a whip, and he starts cracking backs. Now, some of you may say, well, Jesus didn't whip any people. The text says he drove all of them out with the sheep and the oxen. Well, I just can't visit Jesus doing that. Jesus loves everybody. Jesus is meek and mild. He's tolerant. Well, folks, I don't know what Bible you're reading or what Jesus you're talking about. You may be confused with Jesus down the road who makes tacos. But you're not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. And beloved, if there's only one thing you walk away with today from this text... I hope it's this. We don't get to create Jesus into our own image. We must, we must, absolutely must accept Jesus as he is. Not as we, we, we want him to be. Jesus judges people. Jesus exercises righteous and holy anger. Jesus scourges people. In an earlier sermon in this series, when speaking of John the Baptist, the forerunner, we read from Malachi 3, the first of which informed us of the purpose of John's ministry. We'll listen on to what that same text says of the one for whom John prepared the way. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple Then the offering of Judah and uh, Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as it is in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Folks, you're seeing a little taste of that right here in John chapter 2. The Lord suddenly comes to his temple to clean house in judgment. And isn't it interesting that this comes right after the miracle of the wedding? There, Jesus turns water into wine, it's a celebration. There's no doubt Jesus brought a lot of smiles to people's faces that day. And rightly so. It was the best wine. But see, for many people, they want to stop there. They want to stop reading. We love the joy. We love the smiles. We love the love. But what about the rest of chapter 2? You know, wine in Scripture is often associated with joy. But wine is also associated with something else in the Bible. Listen to this same apostle's vision of Christ at the end of Revelation. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. and Lord of lords. Beloved, you better not trifle with this Messiah. Now, without question, Jesus extends grace and mercy and love to his people. And I'm not trying to rob you of any of that joy or pleasure. But I want you to understand something. On the last day, when this Messiah cracks that sky open and descends from heaven... He's not going to descend down as a little Teletubby and pat you on the head and giggle with you and tell you everything's going to be all right regardless of how you lived your life. Our sin is an act of treason and it's war against this mighty king. And all who have fought against him and his word will be stunned and horrified on that day. Who do you think killed the firstborn in Egypt? Oh, hold on, Jason. Exodus 12, verse 23 says, God will not allow the destroyer to enter the houses to strike. Okay? Who sent the destroyer? Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. You know, we said earlier that John wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But understand, it's belief in a Jesus that's revealed in the Scripture. All of him. It's not a Jesus that you make up in your head. It's not the idol you've invented to fit your lifestyle. And so, Jesus walks into the temple to observe the law of God and keeping the Passover, but finds these money changers and starts whipping them out, driving them out. Well, then that raises the question, what exactly did he get angry about? Now, you may be thinking, well, didn't you just give us the background? Didn't you just tell us who these people were and what they were doing? Well, yes. However, if you read the various commentaries, and I'm talking about the good, solid ones, There is a little bit of disagreement as to why Jesus was angry here. Some argue that the text does not explicitly state what the money changers were doing was wrong, per se, but it's because of where they were doing it. Verse 16 reads, And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. C.A. Carson comments, There is no evidence that the animal merchants and money changers or the priestly authorities who allowed them to use the outer court were corrupt companions in graft. Jesus' complaint is not that they are guilty of sharp business practices and should therefore reform their ethical life, but that temple area at all. How dare you turn my father's house into a market, he exclaims. Instead of solemn dignity and the murmur of prayer, there is the bellowing of cattle and the bleeding of sheep. Instead of brokenness and contrition, holy adoration and prolonged petition, there's noisy commerce. Well, that's certainly possible. But let me tell you where I kind of fall on this. I want you to notice the contrast here. He says, there is my father's house versus a house of trade. You have turned my father's house into a different house a house of trade. And he doesn't say market, even though the idea is there. He says house twice. If you look at the Greeks, it's the exact, exact same word twice. In other words, there's a play of words here from Jesus. You have made, you have changed my father's house into a house for something else. And in this house, or in this case, it's a house to make money. So, what they had created was still a house, but it was no longer a house for the Father. It was a house for their trade. Beloved, everybody's a worshiper. In other words, they have exchanged the worship of God for the worship of money. And I think that's the significance of Jesus' play on the word house here. It's still a house. It's still worship. But what's being worshiped here is not my father, but the money. Now that's bad enough. But what makes it even worse is that they're doing this in the name of serving God. Beloved, how many churches today have perverted the worship of God with their fog machines, their circus performances, their name-it-and-claim-it promises. And they do all this in the name of serving God and, quote, loving people. Or, perhaps, it doesn't come with all the circus show, but it manifests itself in these creedless churches who quote Scripture, but then immediately ditch it to give you pep talks every week. And just so you know, I'm not picking on That which is so obvious, I want to ask you, even at a church that takes this very seriously and how we do our worship, how are you preparing when you come to this place? What is your motive? Our friend Dr. John Barber said something on Facebook yesterday that kind of touches on this a bit. I thought this was good. He said, The problem with delayed revival. It's not a lack of spiritual manifestations, people laughing, crying, wailing tongues, rolling around, prophecies, lying in spiritual trances, and so forth, while the rest of the church has bridled the spirit in a spirit of religion. The problem is that most of God's people's lives are not in line with the word of God as a way of life. I've heard it for years, people crying for revival, being lenient to the commands of Scripture because they say we're in an age of grace. And so they treat the Sabbath as, it, as any other day. They covet, they have idols, they disobey parents, and in general follow the law of Christ only insofar as they feel motivated by their personal love for Christ when Christ never left it up to us to decide how we feel about obedience. Every, and I mean every revival, was started by people seeing just how far their lives were from the plumb line of what God has told us to do. I don't care how whipped up you get at the conference to break chains that will release the spirit of revival as if if he's in our control. I don't care if you lay prostrate on the floor for weeks. The way to his glory is through obedience to the written text of the Bible that is profitable for life and godliness. Get off the floor, go home, and look at yourself in the mirror of the Bible, then repent and keep repenting. That is the way to revival. Amen. You know, Scripture will bring out this hypocrisy in many places with respect to the religious leaders. In Luke 16, for example, we read in verse 13, No servant can can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And then get this, the Pharisees who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. In Matthew 23, verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. And then Jesus said in Luke 20, verse 46 and 47, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, in the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses. And for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of the poverty put in all she had to live on. And then notice what followed immediately after this. And while some were speaking of the temple... How it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Hmm. Do you think their love of money, their idolizing of money, their greed had anything to do with God destroying the temple 40 years later? I think so. Do you think they're turning the Father's house into a house of trade played any role as to why God would level that place to the ground? The way involved, they estimate, around a million deaths? Well, I not only think you can gather that from what we just read in Luke, but I think Jesus gets into that very thing here in John 2, which leads to my final observation. Verse 16, as he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, the irony here is that Jesus had already given them a sign. The sign was his cleansing of the temple remember malachi 3 behold i will send my messenger he'll prepare the way john the baptist and then the lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple they already got a sign but couldn't see it where could they i find it interesting that they would even ask that question i mean think about it imagine if someone came into this building right now a complete stranger walked up here flipped this table over and said, all right, you guys are all doing it wrong. Here's how we're going to do it. You think my response is going to be, well, what sign are you going to show to, that you can do this? What authority? No. I'm going to drop kick him off the stage and JP and Enro and Jordan are going to help me drag him out of the building. It's interesting that they didn't just brush him off completely, but they asked, what sign do you show us for doing these things? It's as if they knew something was up. Perhaps Malachi 3 came to their mind, and they knew there was something going on with this guy. D.A. Carson notes, if the authorities had been convinced that Jesus was merely some petty hooligan, or that he was emotionally unstable, there were adequate recourses. That they requested a miraculous sign demonstrates they harbored at least a suspicion that they were dealing with a heaven-sent prophet. But if so, they were asking the wrong sort of question, one that various authorities asked on other occasions. And you see this as you read on in the Gospels. Mark chapter 8, verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And then in Luke 11, verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So, what were they really doing in asking this question? Were they genuinely seeking confirmation of something? Or were they just trying to dodge the problem? I think it was the latter. I think they knew something was up. I think they knew that what they were doing was wrong. But rather than humble themselves and repent in light of what just happened, they dodged the issue by asking that old question, well, who gave you the right to do this? Beloved, have you ever done that? Have you ever seen it done? I have a lot, especially with pastors. You know what you're doing is wrong. and Someone calls you out on it, but you don't want to own up to it. So what do you do? You attack the person that called you out. Isn't that what we read earlier? The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and what did they do to Jesus? They ridiculed him. Friends, I want to share a little tip for you, and it's not just for yourself, but even in your conversations with the outside outsiders, our problem—and I've said this before—isn't the lack of signs. It's not a lack of evidence. The evidence for God is all around us. We're bathing in it. That's not the problem. The problem is, is we hate God. We hate His authority. The problem is, is we have turned from Him and have put other things in His place. And we don't want to be confronted with that. Recall what John told us at the beginning of this gospel, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And then verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus knew what was in the heart. He knew they were playing games with him. And so he gives them this strange answer that not even the disciples picked up on until later. Oh, you want to know by what authority I do these things? Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What? Now, I'm pretty sure if you'd have been standing there with them, you'd have thought, all right, we're standing in a temple. He said, destroy this temple. He's talking about the building, right? So the Jews responded, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And you're going to raise it up in three days? But then verse 21 tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. And when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's kind of double-layered here. Yes, destroy this body. Isn't it interesting that there's another account of Jesus in the temple? In fact, some think there's only one account and John moved it. I don't think that's the case. I think there's two accounts, one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end, and it was immediately after that second one, what did they do to Jesus? They killed him. Also, I think what's going on here, if you recall, uh, Enro had mentioned in the last sermon that there seems to be some indication uh, there's this theme of a new creation that's coming upon this theme to replace the old. One of the indicators of that was in the turning of the water into wine. Specifically, it was water that was poured into jars that were there for the Jewish rites of purification. We go on to John 3. Jesus is going to teach Nicodemus about being born again, new creation. Jesus in John 4 is going to contrast himself, the living water, with the water from Jacob's well. And he's also going to contrast the worship that is in spirit and in truth with that of worshiping at Jerusalem. And here I believe you have another indicator of that theme. Destroy this temple. And yes, that temple... We'll get destroyed. Their desecration of the temple by their idolatry led to it. They destroyed it by their idolatry. But in three days, I will raise it up. What's Jesus getting at here? I think pretty simply what he's telling us is that he is the temple. He's replacing the temple. The temple of old was a shadow of Christ. Christ. Jesus is where and in whom heaven and earth meet. That was the point. Remember John 114, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. Jesus is where and in whom we find grace, again, beginning. Opening verses of this gospel: For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses; grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our mediator. First Timothy two five through six: For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And First Peter two five. You yourselves are like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Brian Hedges writes, the original meeting place between heaven and earth was, of course, the Garden of Eden, that sanctuary garden where God's presence dwelt on earth and where God would commune with man. But through an act of disobedience, man was driven from the garden. He was driven from the tree of life. And the hope of the prophets was that another tree would come, a branch from the root of Jesse, a king, a messiah, who would restore Israel's fortunes and lead them into a bright new age where God would once again dwell with his people. And the good news of the gospel is that that day has come. Through Jesus Christ, the new temple of God replaces the old temple. Through Jesus Christ, who on the tree of crucifixion opened the way to God, Remember the veil being torn in the temple. That veil is torn. What is it saying? The way is now opened. Access is given to the presence of God. The place where heaven and earth meet is at the cross. Then the empty tomb of Christ, so that through his crucifixion and his resurrection, we have access to him. Need a quote. John 10, Jesus says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. There's your reason. There's your authority. The Reformation Heritage Bible says, Christ did not die as a helpless victim, nor was he passive in his resurrection, but he exercised his sovereignty as God to voluntarily give his life and then rise from the dead. And beloved, that's the only sign you need. Listen to Paul in Acts 17. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all how by raising him from the dead. Beloved, will you come to Jesus? Not a Jesus of your own making to fit your life, but the real Jesus Christ revealed in scripture. If you'll notice in verse 22 in John here he says when therefore he was raised from the dead his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. It's Jesus of the scripture. They are one in the same. Again, John told us at the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was God. And the word was God. Or was with God. And so I ask you today. Will you come to this Jesus? His way. In his terms. He doesn't accept Any other. Now, you might get ridiculed over that. You might get laughed at by your friends. But, beloved, that's the way of the cross. Interestingly, when the disciples witnessed the zeal that Jesus had for the temple and for pure worship, verse 17 says, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. What's interesting is that's a quote from Psalm 69. It was the words of David. And in verse 7, he says, for it, is, for it is your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. That's interesting. We started off with this, verse 12, after he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers. John would tell us later that not even his brothers believed in him. Maybe something there. But anyways, verse 9, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayers to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love. Answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Beloved, believe it, you will be attacked. You will be mocked. You will be ridiculed. You'll be told that you're crazy. For insisting that we have to accept jesus all of him or none of him and you'll be told that you're crazy that you've got to you know you're going to be so strict and rigid on how you worship and what you how you do your worship services and what you will tolerate and not tolerate but beloved this is where salvation is found and it's not found in anywhere else And so in verse, again, Psalm 69, verse 29, But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hoofs. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. Beloved, do you love his name? Do you love his honor, his glory? I mean, ultimately, this is about Christ, but also, what does it say about us when we see Christ do what he did in the temple? This anger that he had, does that put you off? Or do you understand the love that he had for his father and for the honor and glory of God? Let's pray.